Hey, I'm Duncan Muchangi, Principal Latinicon Growth Capital, and you're listening to Vibe Check on the African Precinct Podcast. Why so bullish on fintech? In the last couple of years, I mean, I've been now an investor for at least five years, and I've spent quite a significant amount of time now within the fintech sector. And there's obviously quite quite a bit of hype surrounding fintech as a VC backable genre in Africa. But I mean, the, the, the way I look at this space and in why I've actually decided to spend a bit more time in this space is, you know, we Africa has one of the largest opportunities when it comes to not just digitization, but the provision of financial services through technology. Now, one of the things that, you know, we have a very, we have a very fast growing digital economy. Now, the foundation on any digital, digital economy, of course, is the infrastructure. But then we believe, and I believe that financial services will power that digital economy. What that means is, you know, within any technology sector, any technology company, you will find financial services or will, you will find financial services somehow. What happens in, in, the, in the future uh, is once we're able to digitize a lot of the industries within Africa, we will start to collect a lot of data. And, and we've already actually collect, started to collect a lot of data. Now, digitization obviously connects a lot of dots. It connects, you know, some of the most uh, fragmented, uh, you know, supply chains. It connects customers to businesses. It connects businesses to other businesses. And this now opens up opportunities to layer up. What I mean by layer up now is once you're able to connect to fragmented industries or to fragmented you know, chains, there is data that you're collecting there. You know, you're able to you know, be, have very good visibility on how many transactions are going through. You're able to have very good visibility on who are the players or who are the key players within any industry. Now, when it comes to layering up, then we start to add value by asking ourselves, okay, if you're able to see all this transaction happening between two businesses, what is the value added service that you can provide here? And one of the most obvious is financial services, for example, because finances are what power businesses. And so businesses require capital to run. Businesses require lending, you know, they require credit facilities. And so this is some of the uh, value added services that, you know, I believe will be very needed in Africa because, for example, Africa is one of the largest credit cards. And, and this is because one of the main reasons is, now, uh, is lack of data. Then thanks to digitization, we now can layer up on top of that data and we're able now to provide credit using alternative sources, right? And so this is some of the strong points and, and reasons why I believe that, you know, behind, beyond the hype, there's actually real, real need for, for fintech and financial services in Africa. Now, in Africa, because, you know, we have, we've had a very traditional financial services industry, but what we're seeing growing more and more is kind of unbundling of the traditional provision of financial services. So when you think about the one-stop bank that provided for you everything in your life, so from your investing to, you know, they provided you with a loan, they provided you, you know, with as many financial services as you need. What's happening around the world, and this is going to happen as well in Africa, is the unbundling of those services such that you will not necessarily get your mortgage and your credit card and, you know, your investing all from one stop. So different companies or different services will, will be offered 
from different startups or different technology companies. So when it comes, for example, to say to investments, you know, that is one huge market. And, you know, you, there is a, there's a big, big uh, opportunity to, to build a business within the investment space. Uh, when it comes to credit and providing loans, that alone is a very big market. And so we are starting to see provision of these services and specialization as well, because once you specialize, you're able to go to have more depth within that area and you can provide better services to your customers. So within Africa, I think the unbundling of uh, financial services is beyond the hype is what, what is going to, you know, that's the, that's the opportunity for, especially for even investors, right? So I think in the future, we will no longer have just, you know, a bank providing financial services or all the financial services you need. You will probably get them even from your, from, I don't know, your software, your storage provider, you know, whoever gives you your cloud storage will probably give you a loan to pay for it. And so, you know, we're starting to see financial services within every technology company. What did you learn from your early startup failures? So, you know, I have some very interesting lessons from my first startup experiences. I like to call them some of my most expensive learning lessons. And, you know, from, from the very early experiences in my startup career, one of the things, and especially failing when I did postmortem, so to speak, afterwards. What I can say is, number one, co-founder chemistry is one of the first and foremost important things. You know, when you're starting a business, you know, sometimes you can start, you start off as a solo founder and, uh, you know, you can actually grow a business, you know, starting from a solo founder. But of course, you know, some of the best advice and some of the best businesses that have been uh, built out there, they've been built, you know, with a team, right? So one of the important things very early on in your career is to get a very complementary team together and you're able to obviously complement each other in terms of skill sets. But beyond just getting a co-founder with a complementary skill sets, the co-founder chemistry is extremely important. So what do I mean by this? I mean, the, the easiest way I can, be, and I can explain the relationship between co-founders in a business is sort of like a marriage, right? So you know, for lack of better <laughs> comparison, but it is actually like a long-term relationship or a long-term partnership. And so you have to make sure that you're very well aligned with your partner. So I'm talking about you need to know each other very, very well. You're going to spend an intense and insane amount of time with each other. You know, you're going to go through very difficult times. You're going to go through highs. You're going to go through lows. And, you know, it's, it needs to go beyond just a work relationship, right? So you need to understand each other from what's going on in each other's life. You know, do you, are you aligned in your goals in life? You know, you may not exactly be in the same position or uh, at the same place within your uh, your life, but at least you should know where everyone is and, you know, how everyone plans to grow uh, the business. So that's one of the most important uh, aspects of, you know, startups, and especially uh, at the very early stage when you're trying to find the team that you're going to start the business off with. So, and obviously this comes like as, as a postmortem, like, like I said, you know, you, you start to look back at some of the mistakes that you did very early on, you know, were you quick to choose a co-founder where you're not very well aligned? You yourself, you know, you have to be very introspective and, you know, be very genuine with yourself, right? You also have to be uh, willing to compromise, right? In like any other partnership and relationships, you have to be willing to compromise. Now, another lesson I would definitely bring up would be, you know, identifying a problem where you actually have some form of expertise 
or you have actually a lot of knowledge within the area or you know you can learn very very deeply within that specific sector now why, why do i say this you know for you to solve a problem you need to know it very intimately and so it takes an insane amount of time and you know you have to spend quite a significant amount of time within an industry or within a sector to try to, to understand what the gaps are and for you to identify a problem that you can actually solve now the process of solving problems, it's quite structured now, but you know, at that point in time, when I look back, I wish I had the structure, I wish I had the, uh, the, the foresight to actually go out there and maybe work in an industry for a bit of time. I mean, I started off my first uh, startup just straight from school. So I had very limited experience as a, you know, in any industry for that matter. So I would definitely advise that, you know, if you can spend some time working within an industry, you know, this could be within a small organization, within a big organization. This will give you the exposure that you need to be able to solve a particular problem. But beyond that, I mean, anyone can start a business, you know, within a sector, so long as you can be able to learn intimately uh, and deeply with the, you know, what the different aspects and different gaps within that industry. So there's definitely a process of discovery, you know, before you actually go out and, and start a business. And I have to say this. It's not every problem or not every solution you come up with should be a business. And that's something that you learn much later on once you've been trying to go to market with a fantastic idea that everyone is in love with. But you quickly realize that this, this is not a business. I mean, you probably cannot monetize it. And so, you know, it's very important that you're very honest with yourself. Some problems are great to solve, but then not every solution will be a business. Another important lesson during my time as an early founder was what you need to have before you raise money from investors. And the number one thing I've got to say is you need to get your house in order. You need to have your house in order. You need to have done, you know, the homework. You need to have done the background research. You know, you need to have made, you need to make sure that you and your co-founders are very well aligned in terms of what you intend to, you know, do with the money for that for that matter. You know, you need to have a very, very solid plan before you go out and raise money. And then it, it's, it's absolutely fine. Not every business is a venture backable kind of or venture capital backable business. You know, some businesses require very different sources of capital. So before you go out and, you know, maybe convince, you know, investors such as venture, uh, angel, angel investors or venture capitalists, it's important that you, you know, understand is your, what kind of business are you building and, what kind of sources of capital are very, you know, the most appropriate for your business? Because that will align you with the number one, the right people. It, it will help you raise the right kind of capital because capital is very specific, you know, the kind of businesses or the kind of opportunities it looks out for. So even yourself in your business, and this is something I wish I knew very early on, you need to make sure that you identify or you actually know if you're building a business that requires outside in, in angel investment, venture capital, uh, what, what, you know, what sort of capital to raise. And then, of course, I, I have to bring up a lesson about building relationships. I mean, building relationships that will last you a lifetime. That's one of the greatest lessons that I've had, you know, in my very early on startup career. And a lot of them have actually lasted me, you know, more than a decade down the road. And, you know, it doesn't matter what happens, you know, with the business, not always that you'll succeed. And, you know, of course, everyone is rooting for you. Everyone hopes that you, you succeed. But the most important thing is if you build good, uh, long lasting relationships with, you know, your investors, with your colleagues, you know, it means you, you will be able to 
you know, get up again and, you know, in, in case things don't work out, you can continue working with the same people. That is very important. And another thing I would definitely have to mention is the timing of, of the market. Now, one of the greatest uh, expensive lessons that I learned is if you're very early in a market and, you know, you kind of get the timing wrong, you will spend a significant amount of time and money without much progress. And, you know, just to give you an example, around 10 years ago, Uber was becoming very popular in, in Europe and in America. And in Africa, of course, you know, we knew this was going to be a phenomenon. It's going to be uh, a service that was going to you know, take off at some point. But there were certain critical components that were not yet ready. Ten years ago, owning a smartphone was still quite an aspiration for a lot of people. You know, the customers are just starting to get used to using data. So you can imagine taxi drivers, you know, were starting to own their first smartphones. So by the time that, you know, you were trying to say, for example, launch a ride hailing business in Africa 10 years ago, then it means you probably will not have the infrastructure you need. You not have smartphones, which are very, very necessary when, you know, building this kind of business. Data at that point was still very expensive. So that means, you know, that the building blocks that you need for that business are not ready. However, fast forward a year or two years later, the market completely changes. And because obviously within technology, things move very fast. So you need to get the timing right. And so this is some of the homework on some of the research and product and process of discovery that you need to do, you know, before you start a business. And then, you know, of course, uh, lastly is, you know, take care of yourself. Take care of yourself, you know, building a business is a very, very high intense, high pressure exercise and, and process. So you definitely need to take very good care of yourself. You know, get uh, a very good support system, get very, you know, get into the habit of healthy eating, healthy sleeping, and, and get ways to actually release a lot of that pressure and, and intense through, you know, for example, exercise, go for therapy. I really recommend that, you know, entrepreneurs go through some of the most high pressure jobs. So, you know, very early on, please get a lot of that good support system and you will do very well. What was it like to be a junior in the early days? My early days at Jumia were amazing. I mean, Jumia was a fantastic place to learn. And, and some of the highlights, I have to say, at Jumia, just to give you a quick background, you know, Jumia was a, a brainchild of a business building factory. It's called Rocket Internet. And they were known for building businesses at a very large scale. Now, that being a kind of a factory, Jumia had the same DNA. So that means within Jumia, we were building multiple businesses at the same time. Now, in the process of building businesses, I mean, once you do it over time, you kind of get what the necessary kind of building blocks are. What are the necessary structures? You know, who do you need to bring on board? You know, uh, how do you go to market? How, how do you finance this business? Who do you need to partner with? So we, behind the scenes in Jumia, th this were, we had a playbook. So this is perhaps something that, you know, a lot of people may not know, but we, we had a lot of, uh, we had a playbook, but the playbook was borrowed from other rocket internet businesses that were not in Africa. So these businesses were in Asia, some of them in Europe. So it, it was very high level. And the very interesting thing now is when it comes to Africa is the process of localization. And so that is where, you know, the local talent like myself were really helpful and really useful because... Within that time, we had very good and intimate knowledge of the market. 
we, you know, we, we had very good relationships as well. So it was very easy for us to understand who we need to bring on board. What are the kind of necessary localized or localization measures to take within the business? And one of the things I have to bring up that was part of the playbook, you know, a key part of the playbook is uh, partnerships. Now, partnerships are part of a scaling playbook because once you are able to identify a problem to solve and, you know, you're able to identify or you're able to yeah, identify that this is a business, then the most important thing is to bring up, you know, who do you need to partner with? Now, at Jumia, we... We already knew that we needed the partners that would make it very, very easy to scale across the entire Africa very fast. Now, the most important thing at Jumia was speed. So when we, when we, trying, when we, when we started identifying the partners, two, two partners, or the, let me just say one sector in Africa stood out. And this is the sector that had the most customers, the sector that had the most scale geographically. The sector that had the deepest relationship and understanding of customer base within Africa, and that was the telco sector, right? So at that moment in time, if you think about it, you know the, the early digitization or early technology in Africa is is the mobile phone, and that has been the building that has been the foundation or the baseline of technology in Africa. So the telecommunication sector was a very critical partner or, uh, or critical building block for technology and, and in, in this particular case, Jumia. So Jumia partnered with two of the largest telco companies in Africa. So this is MTN and Tigo. So Tigo, the operating company, the commander company was called Millicom. Now, for example, MTN operates in 21 countries, has about, I don't know, more than 270 million customers across the entire continent. So when it comes to partnerships, you know, you could not have a better partner than a telco company like MTN. Now, in countries that are not covered by MTN or they are covered by MTN, you also have the second player, Tigo, right? And then, you know, once you're able to identify these partners, then the most important thing is to ensure that you have a deep relationship with them. Now, how do you ensure a deep relationship with a partner like a telco? Now, there's a process to it as well, because these are very large companies and, you know, some of them are publicly listed. So you need to make sure that they, appre they appreciate why they need your business and how you actually impact their business in terms of growth. Because, again, most businesses only care about their bottom line. So, you know, if you can be able to impact your partner's bottom line, then, you know, they will be help they'll be very, very willing to help your skill. So that was, you know, that was the, one of the secret sauce. At Jumia. So what does this mean in terms of scaling? That means at Jumia, it was very easy and, and, you know, it was, yeah, it was very easy for us to set up in new countries. So as soon as you identify the market in, say, you know, a new country, it could be Uganda, could be Rwanda, could be Ghana or Nigeria, then you already knew that you had a partner there or you, you had a telco that you could partner with there. So, for example, in Rwanda, where I, I, I was first posted, you know, my first landing point was the Tigo office. So that means, number one, I even have an office space. I have a, I have a desk. So they're able to offer you services that, you know, that, that you do not necessarily, these are things that take a lot of entrepreneurs' time when it comes to setting up. So, you know, you have an office space, then you have access to some of the best minds or some of the best talent within that country. So within the Tigo office, 
I was able to meet from the Tigo CEO and then, you know, he was able to bring, you know, rope in the marketing team, he was able to rope in their business uh, and enterprise customer heads. They were able to bring in their, you know, sales, their customer service. And, you know, you're able to come kind of get best practices from the beginning and from the start. So what that means, you know, you are not just setting up any other startup, but you actually have kind of world class, you know, best practices. Now, once you're able to set up, you know, your office, now you also have access to talent. Because some of the people, for example, who were early on employees at Jumia, some of them used to work at some of these companies like MTN and Tigo, because we're able to identify uh, some of the opportunities they're able to identify, you know, this is this is going to be the future of our business. So they were able to share their time between the, you know, the company, the parent company, and also give extra time to you as a startup, right? And then beyond that, the most important, they were able to share their customers, right? Now, they were very, very eager to, you know, support Jumia because it, we, we impacted their bottom line, we grew their data business, and we brought value-added services to their customers. So immediately that you brought a very, you know, you, you put together a campaign with the marketing team, you are able to get access to a very huge customer base. That means you could be able to move faster than any other company out there. I mean, Jumia listed within seven years. Very few companies are able to move at that space uh, in Africa. But, you know, that is the secret sauce behind the Jumia success uh, in partnerships, right? And, and, and uh, you know, another behind the scenes I've got to share is I was able to replicate the, this learning on partnerships by partnering with one of the largest companies in the world called Pano Ricard. So Pano Ricard owns a lot of uh, liquor brands, some of the top high-end liquor brands, and they were looking to go in e-commerce. And we already had a playbook on partnerships. And so we were able to really help them build their e-commerce business and brand and go to market very fast using, using our speed DNA. And also we had a very lean startup, you know, methodology in terms of doing things. You know, we, we, we reiterated, you know, we built an MVP, we reiterated and slowly scaled that up. Now, that relationship with Panary Card, you know, at first was just, you know, kind of like an e-commerce commercial relationship, but that one also scaled up and grew into a deeper relationship where Pano Ricard ended up becoming a very key investor in Jumia. You know, they ended up investing about more than $70 million in Jumia because we demonstrated to them, you know, how our capabilities and they were happy to form a deeper relationship with us. And that relationship is still continuing till today. So partnerships were the, you know, were the playbook behind Jumia's success. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very glad to share that. Any tips for how to go from operator to VC? After my period as a startup founder and, you know, my, my time at building businesses within Jumia, I felt, and, and I, not I felt, actually, I was already involved in helping a lot of other entrepreneurs. You know, a lot of other startup founders reach out to me. They would want advice here and there. And I was really happy to help and, and do just give it back to the community, give back to the society. Now, that is kind of what was the beginning of my transition from, you know, a founder operator into an investor. One of the things I've got to say is I really enjoyed doing this, you know, even without necessarily someone paying me to, to do this because it, it was a process of me giving back, but I also like the process of teaching. I believe whatever you learn, teach and whatever you get, be ready to give. So. My, my process of the transition to an investor and, you know, so, uh, some of the pointers to anyone who would want to go the same kind of direction 
to become an early stage investor. I mean, I have to, from the start, I've got to say it's not as glamorous as it is. It's you know kind of romanticized to be, because you first of all there is not much money to be made at least in the short term, right? So you must be very willing to do this. I would say, you know, for not, not for I mean, to do this for free for quite a bit of time. I mean, I really encourage a lot of operators or founders who want to be investors or early stage investors. Just do this as a side hustle. Do it on the side. You know, don't don't quit your day job. Of course, if you sold a company and you know you you you've had you have quite a, a chunk of money, this is definitely something that you know is worthwhile looking into. But you know, if you're quite if you're still busy and and actively building your business as a founder or you're actively working within another business and an operator, do this on the side because you will have to go through a learning curve. And through this learning curve, you will have to acquire a completely new different and new set of skills. The skills needed as an investor, of course, you will kind of lend a lot or borrow a lot from your life as a founder and your life as an operator. But you also have to learn a very new skill set when it comes to choosing companies to invest in. You know, how, how do you evaluate entrepreneurs? How, how, do you, how are you able to identify the next entrepreneurs? You know, who would be the most successful? How are you able to evaluate a business? You know, are you able to look at a market and identify how large it is? Are you able to understand how to get return on, on the investment that you make? Because that's a completely new skill set. So you must be willing to learn this before you actually do it full time. Now, just like before I mentioned that you should identify or well, spend some time within an industry to understand the problems and the gaps, I would also really, really advise to get a niche or grow an area of expertise. Now, the area of expertise really helps you become more useful and you're able to narrow down your efforts into a specific sector and a specific uh, industry because the founders will rely upon you more and more, not just you know in the beginning, but even later on in their business. So you, you need to understand at least a sector that you become the go-to person. That means if it's fintech, for example, get as far deep as you can in the fintech sector such that you will be the go-to person and you can, you know, you have more depth within a sector. That being said as well, as an investor, you should look at opportunities programmatically and you should also have quite a breadth of knowledge, of information, right? So if, if you're, for example, investing within the financial services or fintech to go back there, you should be able to, to borrow uh, or to lend that into any other sector. Agriculture, they need financial services. Healthcare, they need financial services. Logistics, they need financial services. So beyond just being quite deep or you know getting the depth of within a sector or area, also be you know have a broad knowledge of, of multiple other industries. This is actually the most in, one of the most important aspects of an investor is is your network or all of that, right? So who do you know? Build a very significant network. I mean, you can do this as early on as you start. I mean. Everyone, without without realizing it, already has quite a significant network. I mean, you've gone through school, you've gone through jobs, different companies. And so all along your life, you've just been accruing networks. Now, that is part of your skill set. And that is, sorry, that is part of your uh, toolbox as an investor. So the larger network you have, the more valuable you are to, to founders and to um, as an investor, right? And so that means, you know, if the founder or you know, if you're, you're able to connect founders to some of the opportunities they really need, this could be customers, 
this could be other investors. You know, one of my favorite things to do is as soon as I'm able to identify two people who could work together, the most important thing is to, you know, quickly bring them together on uh, WhatsApp, which is my good too. And, you know, they, I'm able to quickly bring two people together and they explore, you know, opportunities to work together. And a lot of them, they happen very fast because they already know me, you know, both ends know me very well. And so it's it's very easy for them to trust the process. You know, I'm able to filter through, you know, the, the opportunities that I bring to them. And so they're able to quickly move forward and either, you know, acquire a customer or, you know, even make an investment decision. So as an early stage investor, you know, your network is possibly your greatest asset. And then again, so as an investor as well, I mean, very early on, you're taking a gamble, right? You're taking a gamble on opportunities. So some of them might not work out and you must be ready for that. You know, some of the... The, your early bets, once they don't work out, it, it's kind of a disheartening. But I, on, you know, I would definitely encourage anyone who starts investing, do you know, don't 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 um, let it let it let it not break your heart that your first few investments didn't work out. Please keep on doing it. At some point, you start to get it right. But then, as well, look, there is a lot of available information for free online. Make use of that a lot, you know, that will shorten your, your learning journey. It will uh, shorten your entire learning curve. It will shorten the amount of time you need to, or the mistakes that you make very early on. So, you know, th those are some of the advice I would give anyone willing to transition from a founder operator into an investor. And then most importantly, just be willing to pay it forward. You know, you if you've been, um, you know, blessed with this knowledge, you've been blessed with capital, be able to pay it forward. And most importantly as well, you will find as an early stage investor, people want to follow you because once you're able to identify opportunities, your cousin and your you know friend from high school and, and college, they will also want to come along. So at some point you find yourself leading a park. So do not be afraid to you know uh, bring people on board, share these opportunities. And that's how you bring in different expertise into some of these early stage investing opportunities. Is Web3 a reckless gamble? An area that I'm very passionate about, I've been following for the last decade, and I'm very, very excited by the progress in, in the sector and the industry, is within the Web3 space. Now, I, I know, as we recall this at this moment in time, there is a winter currently going on within the, the Web3 or crypto world. But, you know, this, I, I want to speak about Web3 beyond just the gamble that everyone thinks it is. This is a very, very smart and calculated investment sector. And, you know, I've actually invested personally and, and you know, within the, my fund, we've invested in quite a few companies within the sector. And, and I believe that Web3 is the path for, you know, every technology company to become a crypto company. And what, what do I mean by that? I mean, I come from the school of thought that everything that can be tokenized will be tokenized in the future. So what that means is we will have as many tokens or, you know, we will, we will have, we'll have as many tokens in the world as, as we can imagine about. And we're just starting to see the, the early, early, early days of this industry. What is going on right now within the space is we are starting to see kind of experimentation or what you can call the MVP, the minimum viable products at very large scale. Now, usually if you're starting out a company, you probably will try out and do a few experiments 
very controlled uh, within a space or within an industry. But what is going on around the world, the Web3 space and blockchain for that matter, has democratized how we do experiments. So now you're no longer just testing this out in your city, Nairobi or Lagos. You are actually testing this globally. And so that is what we are starting to see happen on a very large scale. Now, if you give, I just give you examples, we are starting to see people test out financial use cases at very large scale. You know, the, 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 the latest trend that has been going around for the last maybe 18, 24 months has been within decentralized finance and all the use cases within it. Now, in particular in Africa, I believe that Web3 will come and fill in very critical gaps that even traditional or even uh, digital financial services will take some time to solve. Uh, just to give you real cases, you know, of, of, of some of the financial, and, and I, love to, I love to, you know, link up Web3 and financial services because it's one of the most, it's one of the most obvious use cases. And I'm talking about from, you know, lending and borrowing, right? From uh, investing. Those are some of the early stage use cases that we started to see today. So a lot of the Web3 and crypto users, they are buying crypto to speculate and you know, some form of investment hoping to make a return on it. But essentially what they're doing, they're creating liquidity and they're creating, they're the early investors who are building the liquidity within this market. Now, we're starting to see the growing use case of borrowing and lending within the decentralized finance ecosystem. So what that means is if I have some spare cash, I could buy some crypto and then someone else who wants to get a loan or a business that wants to get a loan, they can be able to borrow the same cash that I've staked or I've put aside. Now, in, in typical life, you know, in, in, in our day, everyday life, we borrow money, you know, businesses borrow money from their banks, I borrow money from my friends. And so that already exists. Now, this is only happening on the blockchain and it is happening at a very large scale, on a global scale. So that is why I start to see, or I believe that these are some of the largest opportunities within the Web3 world, and already the use cases are very obvious. Now, other use cases that are starting to become really popular, and they, we are starting to see the experimentation at a very large scale, is, for example, non-fungible tokens. We know the use cases of non-fungible tokens beyond just the, the nice cartoons that, you know, and the nice artwork that everyone out there wants to, to hold a piece of. Very real use cases within critical infrastructure, such as think about title deeds, for example. You know, title deeds are some. You know, it, we we need some of them. We need an immutable database to be able to transact using our title deeds. Now, those are some of the use cases we will start to see grow within the Web three world, and then we can imagine what that means because once you're able to tokenize an asset like a title deed, you're able to tokenize an asset like a vehicle, so your logbook then now you can be able to leverage that for financial services, or you can even be able to leverage that for ownership. 20, 30, or 40 people can come together and own a piece of land on one title deed. And, you know, it's very efficient and very easy for everyone to kind of verify and authenticate the ownership of that asset. Now, all this is going to happen on the blockchain. So these use cases are very early on. They've already started to be experimented on and, and proven. And so the next phase now is we are going to commercialize this or we are going to kind of make this mainstream. Now, the process of making this mainstream is not as easy as other services or other uh, digital services because 
there is, there is a lot of groundwork that needs to be done, a lot of frameworks, especially legal frameworks that needs to be developed. And once that is in place and we can see a lot of progress within central banks, within governments that you know have to put together necessary infrastructure and the necessary frameworks, we are starting to see a lot of progress there. And so if you're going to put in a bet within the Web3 world, this is the right time. It's, you know, it's no longer a gamble. The experiments have been done at a very large scale. They've been proven. Now we're moving into the next phase where we make this mainstream. Now, another important thing is about the Web3 world and you know why I, I believe that this is very critical for, for Africa. It will eliminate the middlemen. And I'm talking about middlemen or anyone who, for example, think about funding of companies or funding of projects. As an investor today, I manage other people's money and, you know, because I have very good access to a lot of entrepreneurs who are starting businesses and have the expertise. But the future of businesses and financing, like, you know, new projects will be very democratized. So what that means is if I'm starting a new company today, I don't necessarily need to know all the investors within us, you know, Africa, but I could go on a platform and I could be able to raise capital from across the world because now there is community ownership. Now, an example of this, like I said, you know, we've been, we've seen a lot of Web3 experiments being run at a very large scale. The very popular ICOs or initial coin offerings that, you know, came about a few years ago, this, that was the first entry to that experiment. You know, that was the first, those were the first ones to try this communal ownership. And we've seen, they were able to actually, some of them, you know, some of the amazing projects that are financed by these ICOs have gone ahead and returned very good, very good money to the investors. Very early, very early stage or very early investors within these protocols, they were able to make a very good return. And I think now we are going to see that happen more and more, especially once the frameworks, the legal frameworks and infrastructure are put in place. So one of the most exciting use cases for me, and especially as an investor in Africa, is we are going to start to see democratization of community ownership uh, or, or the ownership of businesses and companies. And so we will see as well capital flowing from just from, you know, the institutions, you know, the pension and the banks and all that. But, you know, even individuals like you and I, we will be able to identify new projects and put in some capital and become part owners. And especially think about it, you know, some of the some of the products and services that you already regularly use. You, you wish that it would be amazing if you are actually a part owner and you are able to kind of benefit uh, from your ownership of and usage, actually, of those products and services. So, but I think that's definitely the future th that there is. Now, I think there's no better time to get into an industry that, uh, than at the beginning and the very early stage. And why do I say this? I mean, within any industry at the very beginning, there is a lot of problems to be solved. That's where the opportunities are because... Once you have problems to be solved, you can believe that there is there's still, there's still a lot of opportunities there. So, for example, within the Web3 world, as much as you're running amazing experiments at very large scale, I mean, we still have some very, very major gaps. And one of the things, for example, is just the user experience. The user experience on Web3 on web right now is, is not the most, it's not the best. A lot of it has just been a lot of the early adopters, very tech-savvy users. But, you know, you can imagine that if the older generation, you know, individuals who are not very tech savvy, they will still want to, I mean, there will be some of the consumers of the future. So there's still a lot of work to be done when it comes to the user experience. And so the products we have today will look very different in the future. 
And, you know, in the future, for example, the way we interact with almost every product will be through a connected wallet, right? So that means, you know, every website you go into will probably ask you to connect a wallet. And then, you know, it means that uh, th there needs to be infrastructure that is created that it's very easy for anyone to be able to connect their wallets and interact with any service that they need to acquire or to, to, to use. So that means there's still a lot of work to be done within user experience on the Web3 world. There's also opportunities to onboard new users. Like I said, we're not very tech savvy. There's also a lot of need for protocols that address broader market needs, you know, not just financial services that I can mention, right? So can we start to look at other sectors like data storage, you know, for example? So beyond just finances, financial services, which is today one of the most popular sectors, can we start to look at identity, digital identity? This is a critical infrastructure of, the, of any digital economy. You know, can the Web3 world, like I said, connecting a wallet, that will be your entry into services within the, uh, the internet or the digital world. So that will be your digital identity. So there's still a lot of work to be done there. We still also have a lot of work and a lot of opportunity to reduce some of the inefficiencies within the Web3 world that we're seeing today. So, you know, can we reduce the costs of making these transactions? You know, as we speak today, Ethereum has just moved from proof of work to proof of stake. And so we are starting to solve the scalability issue, right? So now everyone has been, for everyone is actually focused on the next billion users within the Web3 world. So beyond it, you know, beyond the hype, I think now is actually the great, the best time to get into the business as an investor, because we've already started to build the infrastructure and now the scale that that's needed to monetize this, we're starting to take advantage of that. And so that's why I, you know, I, I believe that anyone and everyone should definitely participate as an investor and a user within the Web3 world. I'm Duncan Mochangi, and this has been Vibe Check. Remember, as an entrepreneur, you need to take care of yourself, take care of your health, take care of your mental health specifically, and you'll do great in your business and your life. So thanks for listening. If you're an African-focused founder or investor looking to learn more about Africa's tech ecosystem, check out africaprecede.com for more great content like this. That's all for now. This has been Vibe Check.